0: Welcome to NetSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve, and it's great to have you with us. On this podcast, we try to familiarize people who may not be immersed in technology with what it does and why it's important to the average citizen and also to the country. Today, we're talking chips, those tiny semiconductors that are essential components in everything from your microwave to hypersonic weapons. With me to discuss, Chris Miller, an associate professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and author of the New York Times bestseller, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Great to have you with us, Chris.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: In the title of your book, you call chips the world's most critical technology. For the uninitiated, please explain.
1: Well, we often think of semiconductors as being in high-tech goods like smartphones and PCs, and certainly they're critical Uh, for providing computing power in those types of products. But actually, today, they're found across the economy. It's not just uh, data centers or computers. It's cars, which often have hundreds of semiconductors inside, dishwashers, microwaves, coffee makers. It's almost impossible to find anything with an on-off switch that doesn't have uh, at least one semiconductor inside. And our modern economy can't work without them. So it's sort of like oil. Uh, has been over uh, much of the past century, chips are something that, similarly, uh, the economy just won't function without a regular supply of them. Uh, And that's an increasing issue because the production of semiconductors, especially the most advanced semiconductors, is increasingly controlled by just a small number of companies in a tiny number of countries.
0: So you mentioned the most advanced chips. Not all chips are created equal. Some are more sophisticated and more complex, right?
1: That's right. And you can divide chips into three very broad categories. One are processor chips, which process information. Second, memory chips, which store information over time. And third, a more diffuse category of chips that uh, turn sensors or real world um, signals into the digits, ones and zeros that can be remembered and processed. When it comes to processor chips, like you'd have inside of your PC or smartphone, Uh, we measure how advanced chips are by the size of the transistors inside. and The transistors are just tiny switches that turn on and off, providing all the ones and zeros that undergird digital computing. The smaller transistors, the more of them you can put on a chip and the more ones and zeros can be processed. And so today, the most advanced uh, chips are measured in a tiny number of nanometers. That's one billionth of a meter, referring to the scale of the transistors uh, on chips. And an advanced smartphone chip will have transistors at the five nanometer level, which allows uh, 10 or 15 billion of them to be put on a uh, tiny silicon chip inside of your smartphone.
0: So the U.S. invented microchips and for years was at the forefront of the industry. Is it still?
1: Well, it depends where exactly you're looking. Uh, Today, to make an advanced semiconductor requires tools, software, designs, and Materials from many different companies and countries. And in certain parts of the production process, like chip design or the manufacture of some of the critical machine tools that are needed to make chips, US companies have unparalleled capabilities today. But in other spheres, like the actual manufacturing of chips, uh, US firms have fallen behind. Uh, And in particular, in the manufacturing sphere, Taiwan and the leading Taiwanese company, TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing company has come to play an almost monopolistic position uh, in the chip industry. It produces today 90% of the most advanced processor chips and has technological capabilities that no other company, including the leading American firms, can match.
0: How did we lose our advantage in manufacturing?
1: There are a couple of reasons why TSMC has uh, done so well in recent years. First is its business model. For a long time, most companies both designed and manufactured chips in-house, but TSMC was founded in 1987, uh, focused solely on the manufacturing process. So they could manufacture chips designed by lots of different customers and therefore manufacture a larger number of chips. And this allowed economies of scale that drove down their costs and also let TSMC hone their production processes over a larger number of chips. And there's a pretty tight relationship between the number of chips a company produces and the advancement of its production processes and so today tsmc is the world's largest chip maker and because it's the world's largest it's also the most advanced now that's partly due to the business model it's also partly due to the fact that the company has had a really unparalleled track record in execution every year chip manufacturers have to roll out a new production process involving smaller transistors and more advanced chips and Year after year, TSMC has hit its targets uh, in terms of advancing its technology level to the extent that no one else has been able to keep up.
0: And I presume U.S. firms offshored production
1: because the Taiwanese were doing it so well. Well, that's right. TSMC has been able to offer both vast production capacity, advanced technologies, and competitive prices. And it's been a uh, an offering that U.S. firms, especially in the chip design space, have found very attractive. And so today, many of America's leading firms in chip design, companies like Apple, NVIDIA, AMD, and Qualcomm, only design chips. They turn to TSMC, in some cases exclusively, to manufacture. And that's had real benefits to the US firms involved. It's given them lots of highly advanced chips at competitive prices, but it's also increased their dependence on chips that are made exclusively in Taiwan.
0: So the so-called chip shortage during the pandemic felt very real to me. I had to wait 10 months to get a new car. Uh, But was it a real thing? And did it illustrate how dependent we've become on other nations for
1: chip production? The the chip shortage that happened over the last couple of years was, uh, in some ways, not a shortage at all. Uh, Chip supply actually increased each of the years of the pandemic by 8% in 2020, and then by double-digit rates in 2021. What happened is that demand surged forward even more rapidly. So it was really a demand um, shock rather than a supply shock. But what it did show us, it illustrated in very visceral terms the extent to which it wasn't only the tech sector that was dependent uh, on semiconductors. In the auto sector, for example, chip shortages delayed the production of thousands of cars, causing several hundred billion dollars worth of Revenue uh, misses by car companies from Europe, to the United States, uh, to Japan, and all other types of machinery faced impacts from uh, semiconductor shortages. So across the economy, the chip shortage illustrated the extent to which everyone had become reliant on semiconductors in which a relatively small shortage of chips could have massive economic implications across the rest of the economy. Now, it, it wasn't really the case that the chip shortage showed that international supply chains don't work. Uh, and in fact, some of the disruptions uh, to supply that happened were actually disruptions in the United States. For example, in 2021, there was an ice storm in Texas that knocked out power and uh, disrupted chip production in the US. But I think the, the fact that we were all sensitized to our reliance on chips over the last two years has helped mobilize uh, increasing focus around this issue uh, across the U.S., and especially uh, in governmental circles in Washington, D.C. And tensions around Taiwan have played into this concern as well, correct? Well, that, that's that's the other aspect, because uh, the entire world, the U.S. Uh, included, depends on production of chips in Taiwan. Uh, I mentioned that 90% of the world's most advanced processors uh, are manufactured in Taiwan. And beyond that, Uh, Over one third of the new computing power the world adds each year comes from Taiwan. So if there were a crisis in Taiwan, a blockade or a war, it would have devastating disruptions, uh, not just for the chip industry, but for everyone downstream from autos to aviation to smartphones. And the fact that the chip shortage happened simultaneous to an increasing ratcheting up and tensions between China and Taiwan has underscored the extent to which we're all reliant on Taiwanese-made chips, but also increasingly uh, face risks around Taiwan's ability to keep supplying. So eyes
0: were opened, and last year, 2022, the U.S. passed the Science and Chips Act, notably with bipartisan support. Both Republicans and Democrats were four square behind it. What exactly does that act do?
1: The act has two main provisions. Uh, The first is to provide new incentives for manufacturing of semiconductors in the United States around $40 billion in direct incentives plus a series of tax credits that, uh, that make it more cost effective to make chips in the US. Second, it devotes uh, slightly over $10 billion to R&D uh, in semiconductors design, uh, intended to boost uh, innovation in the chip industry and uh, provide for American technological leadership uh, over the next several decades in microelectronics. Uh, and both of these um, uh, provisions are, are intended to increase the US's position in the chip industry globally, where the US is still the biggest player, but is reliant on some critical choke points abroad above all in Taiwan, but also to help the US maintain its lead vis-a-vis China, which is one of the newer players in the chip industry, but a country that is pouring money into its own chip industry and has narrowed the gap between its capabilities And the United States' capabilities over the last couple of years.
0: I read somewhere that China is investing three times as much in its chip industry as we are in ours. Is that correct?
1: I think that could well be an underestimate. uh, If you add up the spending by China's central government and all of the provincial and local government funds that are flowing into the chip industries, the scale of government support is uh, tremendous. Uh, It's been going on uh, since 2014 when the Chinese government identified semiconductors as a priority. Uh, and it's had some real successes thus far uh, in terms of increasing China's chip design capabilities and also in terms of improving China's manufacturing uh, capabilities. China is still far from the cutting edge, uh, but it's closer than it was a decade ago. And the amount of resources that Beijing has devoted uh, certainly provide um, a guarantee that companies won't face severe funding constraints if they try to uh, develop new technologies.
0: We talked in a previous episode of NetSec Tech about export controls and efforts to stem the flow of sophisticated chips and the things required to design and manufacture them to China. Um, what's your take on export controls? Do you think they can be effective?
1: If you look at the export controls the US has rolled out against uh, China's semiconductor industry, what you find is that they're really quite targeted on certain types of one type of chip and uh, certain types of chip making machines that the US today has really a monopoly over. And I think China will find it quite difficult uh, to quickly replace this technology with domestic production. And the reality is that although China is a growing player in the chip industry, it's still a small player when it comes to cutting edge technology. You wanna manufacture a cutting edge chip in China, you can really only do it by importing a ton of machinery, material, software tools from the US, Japan, the Netherlands and other countries. And so Chinese chip-making facilities only operate close to the cutting edge because they're able to import tools. And that means that when they're cut off from US tools, they really struggle to produce anything close to leading edge chips. And similarly, when it comes to the types of semiconductors that are used uh, for uh, training AI systems and data centers, which are the type of chips called GPUs that the US has prevented uh, companies from exporting to China, There too, you find that there are Chinese competitors, but they're really quite far behind and they can only get close if they've got access to cutting edge manufacturing. But cutting edge manufacturing is not happening in China. It's happening in Taiwan and South Korea, which are going to enforce the US export controls on this issue. So when you sum it up, China doesn't have the chip making capabilities at home. It doesn't have the machine tools that you need to make chips uh, produced domestically. And so it's quite reliant on imports, which gives the US a lot of leverage over China's chip industry. So I think the export controls will succeed in delaying China's progress.
0: So looking at both of these things, the, the CHIPS Act and also the export controls, it sounds like you don't think there's a real risk that with those in place, China can overtake the U.S.
1: Well, I think it's, it's a complex question. I think my best judgment is that it's most likely that the U.S. will retain its lead in semiconductor technology. But I think that's a question not just of who will be in the lead, but by how much. And there's no doubt that the U.S. lead has slipped over the last decade when you compare where China was in the past to where it is today. Uh, And so I think the, the CHIPS Act and the export controls are sensible measures that will increase the U.S. lead relative to what it would have been in the absence. I will say that there's also some uncertainty about how this will develop. And so I don't think it would be. Uh, wise to assume that every Chinese program uh, designed to boost its chip industry will succeed. The track record is mixed in China, but I think it would be equally foolish for us to assume that they'll fail uh, and bet that they'll fail, and not take steps on our own end uh, to boost our own industry and to limit uh, the extent to which U.S. technology is used to benefit China's industry. So I think we we shouldn't be Um, We shouldn't be panicky about the situation right now. There still is a substantial technological lead that the U.S. has. We also shouldn't take it for granted because it's far from guaranteed.
0: China isn't the only player on the field. I presume that there are others with significant chip industries who also are doing a lot of investment to try and gain the lead or at least stay competitive.
1: Am I right? Well, that's, that's absolutely right. And one of the things that makes the chip industry complex today is that there is no country in the world not the US, not Japan, not Taiwan, that can make an advanced semiconductor on its own. Even the Taiwanese who have the most advanced chip making capabilities need to import tools, software, materials, chip designs, intellectual property from multiple other countries. And so the challenge for the US is to retain this international ecosystem involving Japan, involving the Netherlands, involving South Korea, and Taiwan, and evolving in critical ways in the United States to promote technological advances in this set of countries, which are all allies, uh, while simultaneously making sure that this set of countries stays ahead of China and limits technological flows uh, of critical types of tools and chips to China. And so the coalition aspects of this are going to be critical to the success of U.S. policy. And one of the challenges is making sure that companies and political uh, leaders in all the other countries are as on board as we can get them when it comes to the strategy.
0: And they're not right now.
1: Well, I think we're in the process of, of coalition forming. I, I I will say that I think over the past several years, the U.S. has applied a series of export controls when it comes to semiconductors. And broadly speaking, they've been followed by Taiwan, by South Korea um, in particular. Now there's discussion underway between Japan and the Netherlands with the U.S. about uh exports of chip-making machines to China. Um, My guess is that uh, in six months' time, we're going to reach a conclusion of these discussions uh, that suggests there's a fair amount of alignment between the export controls of these three countries.
0: Even though those other countries have a chance here to get a real advantage, they can get into that market potentially while we're putting up a wall.
1: Well, it's a complicated dynamic. Um, On the one hand, uh, there's certain subsets of the chip tool making business where uh, unilateral US export controls that limit US firms, but don't limit foreign firms could provide uh, an advantage uh, to companies from Japan or from the Netherlands. On the other hand, for all of the big companies that make uh, machine tools that manufacture chips, their biggest customers are in Taiwan, and South Korea, uh, and increasingly in, in the US as well. And China is a um, is for most of them, a market only for the less advanced tools, um, and it's far from their, their most critical customers. On top of that, U.S. export controls make it difficult to run uh, cutting-edge production lines because for cutting-edge production lines, you basically need U.S. tools to run them. And so even if you can buy tools from other companies, if you can't make an entire production line, uh, there's not much point in investing in a chipmaking facility. And so actually, I think the export controls uh, will um, not be completely binding on companies from other countries, but they're already going to limit sales um, pretty substantially. And so that dents that reduces the commercial incentive that companies from Japan or the Netherlands have to push against U.S. export controls. I would say in addition is, to
0: that... I was just going to ask if Russia was an example of how this can work.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I think Russia is an example of of success in terms of multilateral export controls, but I think it's a much easier... Uh, case study. Russia had a tiny chip industry. Uh, It was economically irrelevant for almost all chip firms. And so China is a much more complicated uh, situation. But I think it's not simply a business calculus for Japan, for the Netherlands. There are strategic issues at play here. And I think if you listen to policymakers in both countries, you'll find that they're assessing the strategic ramifications, military ramifications, alongside the commercial aspects of this.
0: Would you talk a little bit about that? What are the strategic and national security implications in this
1: chip race? Well, what you find historically is that every country that is has had access to advanced computing capabilities inevitably deploys those capabilities for intelligence purposes and for military purposes. Since the first computers were deployed uh, uh, in the UK during World War II to crack Nazi codes or Uh, in the U.S. in the uh, mid-40s to calculate artillery trajectories up through the Cold War, when both the KGB and the National Security Agency had privileged access to their country's most advanced supercomputers, there's been an inevitable relationship between computing power, intelligence uses, uh, and military systems. And so advanced semiconductors, which are absolutely critical inputs to, uh, to computing systems, are therefore not simply about smartphones or PCs. They're about Uh, intelligence and military systems as well Uh, if you want to analyze large amounts of data uh, as intelligence agencies do you need advanced semiconductors if you're thinking about military systems and you want autonomous drones for example or underwater vehicles well they need to be able to sense a lot of data that requires semiconductors they need to communicate effectively with other um, other systems on the battlefield that requires semiconductors and increasingly and this is the most important point increasingly uh, semi-autonomous systems are not only using semiconductors in the system they're being trained in data centers trained uh, via artificial intelligence applications uh, to act autonomously uh, to um, uh, and this training happens not in the real world it's not like we're sending drones around and seeing where they crash into they're trained in data centers uh, data centers are stocked full of advanced semiconductors and the more advanced ships you have the more effectively and efficiently you can train AI systems. And so the linkage that's most important going forward is to access to advanced chips, the ability to build advanced data centers, and the ability to train AI systems uh, to enable uh, new military capabilities. And that's exactly what the U.S. is focused on when it comes to the most recent export controls.
0: Given the criticality of chips, what else does the U.S. need to do? What is it not doing that it should be to protect or improve its advantage?
1: I think what we've seen the US do over the last five years is 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 absolutely the right step. For a long time, uh, there was a sense that semiconductors were a, a good that was too internationalized to control and was a sphere where the US, because it was the largest player in the chip market, didn't need to think strategically about who was accessing technology and what the US market position was. I think now we see uh, in both parties in Congress, the administration, people taking this seriously as an issue, not just of commercial success, but of. Uh, national security. Now, the next step, I think, which the Chips Act is going to hopefully support, is uh, is is putting additional resources behind R and D, so that not just the systems of today and tomorrow, but in a decade's time and two decades time, continue to be built primarily in the United States. Uh, because computing technologies, uh, I think we can say with pretty high confidence, aren't going to slow down, and will be just as important in 20 years' time as they are today. And so that, I think, is the 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 next um, step in preserving America's computing advantage. Uh, which it's taken advantage of over the last uh, half century and deployed very effectively to military intelligence uses. Now we need to guarantee that advantage in the future um, as a critical input of national power.
0: They always say you should study history to avoid uh, making the same mistakes over again. You've taken a look at the history of the microelectronics industry, a deep look at it. What are the big lessons the U.S. should have learned? And do you think the country is taking them to heart?
1: Well, I think there were uh, two things the U.S. uh, uh, erred in 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 the last several, um, in in the last decade, I would say. Uh, The first is in ignoring the question of where semiconductors were built. Uh, For a long time, globalization was just taken to be um, a a fact of life. Uh, No questions were asked about where semiconductors were being produced. And it led us to a situation today where 90% of the most advanced processor chips are made in a geopolitical hotspot. Uh, in Taiwan, in hindsight, that was a historical error uh, that we're paying dearly for right now to try to begin to rectify, and it's going to be very expensive uh, to do so. I think that was a mistake. I think secondly, uh, for too long, we failed to take seriously the extent to which China was going to use advanced computing capabilities to support its military modernization. and I think right now uh, the u s military is having to struggle to keep up with advances that uh, China has developed over the past uh, decade or two, which in many ways were quite foreseeable, but because of ideological blinders that American policymakers had, weren't really taken seriously. Uh, and that's something else that I think is a mistake that uh, we, we collectively made uh, over the past several decades that we're now rapidly and, and, and in fact too late trying to rectify.
0: But we did learn something.
1: I I guess we learned. Uh, I wish we'd learned it uh, five or 10 years earlier.
0: Professor Chris Miller of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, it has been great to have you here and get your perspective. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And thanks so much to all of you for listening. Hope you'll join us again for another episode of Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. Take care. Until next time.